The Intelligentsia Report has been brought to you by The Intelligentsia Agency, Inc., an invitation-only professional speakers and consultants agency located in the business district of Tyson's Corner, Virginia. We invite you to learn more about The Intelligentsia Agency, Inc. by visiting www.theintelligentsia.co or calling us toll-free at one 777 7993. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Intelligentsia Report. I'm here today with a special guest, and he is one of the most respected voices in business journalism. In addition to his current position as a senior editor at large for Fortune magazine, he is also an award winning author, a daily commentator on CBS Radio Network and a globally recognized speaker. Our guest is not only one of America's leading experts on leadership and the InfoSec revolution, but he also provides valuable insights on the key issues impacting the economy and business today. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Mr. Jeff Colvin. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. It's an honor to have you with us today, Jeff. Now, before we get into the more academic and intellectual questions, would you mind sharing with us and the listening audience a little about yourself, your background, where you're from, and how you got into the business that you're in? Yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, I was born and raised in Vermilion, South Dakota. When I was in high school, I finished high school in southern Illinois and then went east. I've been in the east ever since. I went to Harvard, where I majored in economic, then went down to New York, where I went to work actually for William Paley, the founder of CBS, the CBS television oh, network wow. and everything associated with it. He was writing his memoir, and there was a team of people who were actually writing it for him, as it were. He was not going to really write a book on his own. So that was a great project for me because I'd been in the broadcasting business, and even in high school and all through college. So that was wonderful. And when that project ended, I went literally across the street in New York to work for Fortune, which is a magazine I had always admired greatly and obviously mm -hmm. was about something of tremendous interest to me. So I've been there for most of my career, done pretty much all the things you can do when you're at Fortune magazine, which has been a fantastic place. And that's how I got into to what I do. I, it's a, a, an area that has always interested me. And I was lucky to have some great opportunities. That's fantastic, Jeff. Thank you so much for sharing. Now, with your speaking career, I know that you're obviously an expert in a wide array of topics. But can you share with our meeting and event planners, what is it that you do in your work and what are you best known for? Well, what I do in my work, really, is look for the largest issues and the largest trends that are going to affect a lot of people in business uh, across industries and in an, in an important way. And then what I do is try to identify them, those issues and trends, and then understand them and try mm -hmm. to explain them to a larger audience. And, you know, if we really get into this kind of deep question of, you know, what does one do? To me, I think a lot of it is simply trying to understand 
some really important things that are going on in the world. I try to understand them and then I try to explain them. And for whatever reason, I really like doing that. And so this idea of trying to understand something, well, that's pretty rewarding all by itself. And then trying to explain it to people and help them understand it. I find that rewarding too. And so that's what I do. And my focus is in what will be important business people for the most part. That's really it. And I can hear the passion in your voice when you talk about these topics, Jeff. And would you say that your passion is one of the reasons why you love the work that you do? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I do love the work I do. And I am incredibly lucky to be able to do it. And, you know, I wouldn't love it if this were not something that genuinely engages me. Uh, right. I, 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 you know, I, I care about this. And by the way, you know, I mean, I do care about it. And I, I get sometimes a little frustrated with people who say, oh, it's just a bunch of dry numbers and stuff. Well, mm-hmm. I, I, it's not just a bunch of dry, dry numbers. What we're talking about is what affects the well-being of millions or rather billions of people. You know, what really affects their lives and how well they're going to live. Uh, You know, this is really important, significant stuff for real human beings. And um, that's what connects all this together. And that's what makes me so interested in it. So, Jeff, I had the opportunity to read your book, Talent is Overrated, What Really Separates Mm. World-Class Performers from Everyone Else. And my next question kind of touches on some of the content of your book. Uh, Do you think that it is, in fact, necessary for people to love the work that they do? And is that something that is necessary for their success, for them to find meaning in their work and not just be a cog in a wheel, so to speak? Well, that's a really uh, profound question. Um, the The big point of that book, Talent is Overrated, is that people who are great performers at anything, whatever it may be, uh, you know, sports or music, but also, uh, you know, leading an organization, flying a jet aircraft, performing surgery, really great at whatever they do. What they all have in common is not that they were born with a natural ability. In fact, the researchers on this topic, some of them even doubt the existence of natural abilities in any specific way. But rather, the Mm -hmm. great performers are people who have engaged in this uh, activity that the researchers call deliberate practice, which is not to be confused with what most of us do when we think we're practicing. Deliberate practice is very specifically defined, and it's what all the great performers do. It's what they all have in common. And I won't go into the details of it, but I can certainly tell you this. It's hard. It's it's not Mm -hmm. easy. And as the researchers said in their kind of academic way, it is not inherently enjoyable, which I think it means it's not fun. Uh, it's hard. And so for somebody to be great, to get now directly to your question, for somebody to be really great at what they do, they have to be willing to go through this. 
And specifically, they have to be willing to go through it basically every day for years and years. And so why would anybody do that? Well, they better be passionate about it. Uh, at mm -hmm. a certain point, they have to be passionate about it. Now, do they have to love it? I think that as adults, they do have to love it. They, in the sense that they have to get some kind of deep reward from doing this. They have to get some kind of deep satisfaction. But I must also point out that uh, some of the greatest performers, especially in the fields of sports or music, had to be started early in life by their parents. When mm -hmm. it was kind of too early for these kids to love what they were doing, they had to be made to do it. And they, they may not have loved it back then. In fact, Andre Agassi, one of the all-time great tennis players, uh, when he finally wrote his autobiography, began that book with the sentence, I hate tennis. And oh. you can't really, you can't believe it. How could he possibly say, I hate tennis? Well, it's because mm -hmm. his father made him practice and he didn't want to do it. His, his father made him practice for hours and hours every day for years, and he hated it. Uh, he came to be, obviously, the world number one, and um, he you know, got to the point where he did derive satisfaction from it. But since you asked mm -hmm. specifically, do you have to love it? Well, you don't have to love it, at least initially, but you must reach a point where you do derive some deep satisfaction from it. And for most of us, that would mean loving it. And I like how you made that distinction, Jeff. For someone to do something and be good at it, initially, the satisfaction of the rewards may be external, but it's really when they take the time and turn it into an internal satisfaction that helps their drive to be the best that they can be, even if they don't necessarily have the innate talent for it. Yeah, you, you put that exactly right. Uh, the motivation for most people, not all, but for most people, is initially extrinsic. It comes from something outside. They're being made to do it, or they're doing it for the money, or they're doing it for some extrinsic reason. But for all the great performers, it does eventually become intrinsic. And in fact, some of the great, in other words, they're just doing it for themselves. They're just doing it for what it does for them. When the motivation switched from extrinsic mm. to intrinsic, and they decided from now on, I'm doing this for myself. And that's mm -hmm. a key moment. And I think that's an incredible part for anyone who's listening to take note of. For my next question, Jeff, you've obviously spoken and taught at some very important and reputable organizations. You are a world-renowned speaker, and you've engaged audiences on six continents to date. Can you take a few moments to share how the information that you present with corporate audiences makes an impact not only on their performance, but also on the organization's bottom line. Essentially, how does what you do translate into dollars and cents? What I do changes the way people think in an organization. And that's mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do. Uh, you know, look, in a, in a typical uh, 
speaking role, you're on stage for an hour or so. Um, you know, it's maybe presumptuous to say that one could uh, work miracles uh, with a group uh, in, in an hour. But what I can do, and what I do, in fact, uh, because the, they tell me afterwards, is change the way a group of people thinks about something, gives them mm -hmm. some ideas and insights and ways of thinking that they just didn't have before. I mean, when you think about it, the, these conferences where somebody like me speaks are often a rare opportunity for the people in that audience to lift their heads up and think about bigger issues than most of us spend our days worrying about. Because, you know, yeah. frankly, most of our hours are filled up with dealing with problems that are of quite immediate concern, putting out fires, that kind of thing. And so when we go to a, a conference, that's our big chance to say, okay, I'm setting aside my daily work and I'm thinking about the big issues that are going to affect me and this business uh, over the next year or two or five. And Frequently, they really need some thought starters. They need some insights, points of view that will cause them to think in a new way. And that's what I do because that's what leads them to really make significant changes. And I have had people tell me after these engagements that in a remarkably short amount of time, I have changed the way that they think about some of their most important issues, such as the human capital of the business. How are they developing it? How are they using it? What are the problems that they're having with it? Uh, what about their business model? Is it still working the way it should be? And is their organization prepared to change that business model in today's environment? These are deep and difficult questions. and what I try to do, uh, and, and in fact know that I do, uh, is give people a framework so that they can solve this problem for themselves, for them and their organizations. That's, that's the objective. And I'm happy to say that the conference organizers uh, typically tell me that, that I've achieved that objective for them. And we know that you're awesome, Jeff. I'm sure that anyone who is able to experience you in person is able to walk away from that conference or that engagement change in ways I'm sure they aren't even aware of at that moment. For the long term, just a tiny tweak in how organizations and even certain businesses are able to capitalize on the information that you share. How would the system that you put in place directly impact that group of people? They'd speak to each other in a different way. In other words, um, I give them some thoughts, for example, about business model innovation. This is a, such a huge topic. Innovation is you know, the hottest word in business, but frequently it is talked about with regard to products and services. What right. I talk to them about is something much deeper, which is innovating the business model itself. And how are we going to do that? 
And I suggest to them that regardless of the industry they are in, it is virtually certain that they are going to have to innovate their business model, um, mm -hmm. possibly in ways that they have not even contemplated. Uh, that CEOs I talk to, when they're being really candid, say that their greatest fear is the competitor they never even thought of, the competitor mm. they didn't know was there because it's coming at them from such a completely different direction. And so then I give the group a framework for thinking about this. Sometimes the framework is about the friction-free economy. Uh, the fact that a digital economy takes enormous amounts of friction out of the way we do business. Friction sometimes in the form of information costs or transaction costs or switching costs, sometimes in other ways. But that has transformed so many businesses. It is at the heart of so many huge successes like Amazon and Uber and others. And I asked mm -hmm. them to think about how this could mean something for them. What if somebody could take the friction out of their business? It's really important because the friction is usually revenue for somebody. And as technology takes friction out, that can seriously uh, upset the uh, business model of big, successful, incumbent companies. And so immediately people are going to think in a new way and talk to each other in a different way. Um, with regard to how small teams actually work together, which is something you did ask about specifically as well, um, mm -hmm. it turns out there's great research on this, which I explained to groups. Um, what makes small teams effective? Well, the research shows that it isn't what most of us think. It isn't the cohesion or the motivation or the satisfaction of the team. Uh, the IQ of the smartest person on the team has zero effect on how effective it is. What makes it most effective is the ability of the team members to read one another, what they call the social sensitivity of the team oh. members. If they can read each other well, the team is very effective at solving problems. And if no one dominates in the team, again, the team is incredibly effective at solving problems. And so when a small team gets together, and of course, I'm giving you just a couple of highlights or headlines from it, there's mm -hmm. much more, but when a small team gets together, after having heard about all this, well, you can imagine they really treat each other in a very different way. And I even give them some exercises that they can do um, when they are back in their team setting. And it changes the way they operate and makes them more effective teams. That's incredible, Jeff. Thank you so much for elaborating on that. And to touch on something that I know a lot of businesses and organizations worldwide are beginning to realize is becoming very impactful innovation is artificial intelligence. So I wanted to talk to you about that a little bit, specifically in the framework 
of your latest book, Humans Are Underrated, What High Achievers Know That Brilliant Machines Never Will. And so we know that with artificial intelligence transforming our healthcare systems, transportation, even our national security, how will businesses be able to come to terms with the explosion of innovation and how will that impact how they operate in the near future? Well, it's going to be tough to come to terms with it and to remain uh, a leader and to remain competitive. I mean, here are the challenges. One, figuring out how to use this incredible technology most effectively. It's being developed all over the place and being applied in all kinds of ways. But the great challenge is going to be, how do we apply it in our business in such a way that it's really, it creates maximum value for us? And how is someone else trying to use this technology to make us irrelevant? How is somebody else trying to use this technology to create a new business model that was never uh, possible before? that will make our business model uncompetitive. Because you can bet your life that there is somebody out there trying to do that right now with regard to your company. Absolutely, and so you've gotta be thinking, how is somebody gonna do this? Now, as you think about how somebody else might do it, which is another way of saying, as you think about how we ourselves might do that, uh, so that we remain, competitive and successful. There's something to watch out for, and that is having a fixed and wrong idea about what the limitations of the technology might be. Here's what I mean. We all have this tendency, and I even have to catch myself sometimes, we all have this tendency to look at the state of technology today, what it can do and what it can't do, and think that we are seeing the inherent limitations of the technology. So, you know, if it's not very good at identifying a cat in a picture, we say, well, you see, technology is no good at image recognition or image mm-hmm. classification. Uh, these machines just can't do that very well. No, don't think that. It's wrong. What we're seeing and what I'm describing is actually the case a couple of years ago, because back then technology wasn't very good at it. What we're seeing is the current limitation of technology, but it's not an inherent limitation. Uh, I can show you where really smart people said, you know what, technology will never be very good at uh, playing chess at a very high level. It will never be very good at translating languages. Uh, It will never be able to drive a car. A couple of really smart economists whom I respect very much wrote a book in 2006 saying, you know, technology will just never be able to drive a car. Well, you know, time and again, those predictions are proven wrong. So what I'm saying is be imaginative. Think big when you think about what artificial intelligence might be able to do for you, because even if it can't do that right now, the chances are that it will be able to do it soon, probably sooner than we think. 
So we, exactly. we, the challenge for all of us is to think big enough to take advantage of the artificial intelligence that you're asking about. I wrote the book because I could see what was happening, I thought, and I could see the technology advancing faster and faster and doing things that truly we never thought technology would be able to do. We've seen uh, robots and other technology take over a lot of repetitive jobs in factories, repetitive jobs in offices, and we thought, well, okay, fine, you know, those are kind of mechanical jobs in the first place. So, you know, that, mm -hmm. that'll be fine that, ha that machines do that. But then I began to see machines doing far more advanced things. Machines are doing some of the work that lawyers used to do. They're doing some of the work that doctors used to do. People with very advanced educations who get paid a lot of money for what they do. And now we are seeing computers do some of that work. And they do mm -hmm. more of it. And they do it better every year. And right. that's what prompted the book. It was asking the question, what will be the role of humans in the economy as technology does more and more of what we do, not just faster and cheaper, but faster, cheaper, and better than we do it ourselves? Mm -hmm. And I know that's something that a lot of not just companies, but even people are having to come to terms with. Exactly right. And and just to answer uh, the question I kind of posed there, what will the role of humans be? It's becoming clear that the economically valuable skills will be the skills of human interaction, skills of deep human interaction, managing the relationships that take place between human beings. And this is quite a change in economic history because what I'm talking about are skills that so far really are not taught in schools. You don't learn them from a book. Uh, you learn them in different ways. But skills of deep human interaction we are already seeing are becoming some of the most economically valuable skills as technology advances. Mm -hmm. And Jeff, I know we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to prompt this question for you. What is it in you, if you know, and if you're willing to share this with the audience, that has allowed you or driven you to become as successful and optimized as you are? And are you actually able to acknowledge, or would you agree, that you are a version of a human being that is optimized? <laughs> well, that, that's a hard question to, to answer about oneself. Um, we all differ, uh, obviously, every person is unique, and it is valuable to be able to uh, take advantage of what is, you know, unique about oneself. And so, I, look, I, I have been uh, interested in certain issues for a long, long time. Uh, a lot of them have to do with the economy and so forth. Also, a lot of them have to do with human ability. What makes us able to do the things we do? And mm -hmm. specifically, you know, what, what do we find rewarding? 
what is it that we can do that's valuable that will reward us in some deep way? And I can't explain why those questions have fascinated me for most of my life, but they have. And I've been just really, really lucky to have the opportunity to deal with those questions and get paid for it. And, uh, you know, in addition to that, I happen to love to speak. And mm -hmm. that is something that it turns out to be quite unusual. I didn't realize it at the time, but I have since seen uh, various uh, pieces of research, you know, where opinion polls are conducted and uh, people are interviewed. And it turns out that the vast majority of people are absolutely terrified of standing up in front of a group and speaking. Well, right. Uh, right. I mean, there's the, a the huge number of people say they would rather do almost anything. You know, they'd rather have, go to the dentist and have root canal than step up, step up in front of a group and speak. Um, well, I just love it. You know, I just love to do it. And so uh, that's that's been a great thing, too. It's just something that's different about me and uh, and a few other people. Um that happen to be very fortunate. And that's an excellent insight that you have, Jeff. I love your answer and the fact that you're very honest about what it is that you love. I, for one, can say you do an absolutely fantastic job. Thank you. You're very welcome. So what is your favorite word and or your favorite pastime? My favorite word is love. My favorite pastimes are reading, talking with other people, mm -hmm. and being outdoors, being in nature. Uh, we human beings became human beings in the great outdoors, and there is something deep, deep inside us that loves that, and we are in danger of losing it as we spend way too much of our time indoors. So I, I love and, and really do get a benefit from being outdoors. If you don't mind me asking, why is love your favorite word? Because I find it such a wonderful guide. Whenever I have a question about my own life, about my own, uh, what I'm doing, you know, I just, if it's really deep and I really am trying to sort it out, just thinking about, you know, just think about love, the concept that it is arguably, well, at least I might argue, the most powerful force in the world. And, okay, how am I reflecting it? How am I, mm -hmm. uh, how am I embodying it? Or am I? Because uh, I should be. I just find it at a time of confusion something very valuable to think about. Brilliant. And for my last question, Jeff, what do you think of the state of the nation and the state of the world? Since I know that you speak a lot on globalization, the economy, um, different areas of politics and how it intersects with business. And so I just wanted to get your take on that. I guess I'd say that from moment to moment, I have a lot of concern and worry about the state of the nation and the state of the world. Every day when you read the news, you have more reasons to be worried uh, and even upset about 
the state of the nation or the world. But whenever I find myself thinking about that, uh, I try to remember a couple things. One, uh, people have always worried about that. People, I mean, and when I say always, I'm thinking about stuff I've read from the ancient Greeks. They thought the world was just going straight downhill and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we were all in trouble. It, they've always thought that and somehow we've always come through. Um, it, it's probably best not to get too terribly uh, pessimistic about this. And then the other thing I think about is, oh, wait a minute, there's the world I read about in the news, but then there's the world that I experience. Traveling around, I'm so fortunate to travel all around the country and all around the world, talking with people. Okay, well, what's the world that I am personally experiencing? And it is full of promise. It is full Mm -hmm. of people who are so brilliant, so ambitious, so imaginative, such good people that I think, you know what, overall, I'm going to stay optimistic. There is so much good happening in the world that we don't read about and that we don't see on cable news. There is so much good in the world. So many people who are A, just wonderful human beings, B, educated, intelligent, ambitious, creative. Uh, Overall, I I stay optimistic. Uh, It has always been the right way to bet, and I think it still is. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today and to the work you do is absolutely invaluable. And we just want to say thank you for your contributions to global industry. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me. Those were wonderful questions and I really enjoyed it. Well, until next time, listeners, this has been the Intelligency Report. We'll see you next week. Do you need a professional speaker or consultant for your next event? Here at the Intelligentsia Agency, we are committed to providing our clients with the very best and highly vetted speakers and consultants. Visit us at theintelligentsia.co to see more of our remarkable speakers and consultants.